All right, sorry, I didn't miss my cue. I didn't want to knock this guitar over and all sorts of chaos up here, moving parts. Hey, good morning, everybody. Wait, you didn't even know what I was going to finish saying, maybe. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Appreciate you uh, being here. And I don't know if you've taken the opportunity to yet this morning do what our new motto is, do what I'm going to wear t-shirts of, but the new motto here at Calvary, right, in addition to our vision statement, is <clears throat> bring the word, grab a bulletin, bring the word, grab a bulletin, boom, some people did it, right, because we want to make sure you know that we have a bunch of different opportunities and ways to try to engage you, connect you, disciple you, equip you, uh, let you meet other people, and <clears throat> we purposefully use the bulletin to try to communicate and convey some of those things, and we're really excited about this vision that we're pressing into this year um, to try to build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And so in the bulletin, we regularly put ways for you to be involved with us, for us together to do those things. And two just opportunities that have been in the bulletin and mentioned at different times uh, that we want to celebrate, right? We have a great opportunity as a church this summer in a variety of ways, but two particular ways to try to collectively uh, reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And so we have two teams of people who are going out on some uh, short-term mission trips this summer. We have an adult team, and then we have a team of our student life kids wearing the amazing lime green t-shirts today. Uh, but the first trip is a trip to the Dominican Republic, kind of an opportunity to do some Bible training and opportunities with kids, and we appreciate the way you guys have worked and grabbed and, and tried to partner with us in this. You grabbed a bunch of tags from out there in the lobby. Uh, you came back and gave about 58 to 60 bags that are going to be taken down there so that um, young girls can continue to go to school and get their education down there in the Dominican Republic, and so we just appreciate the way that financially and the resources you've partnered with that. So we're excited about that. That trip leaves uh, with the adult trip around the 16th of July. And then right about when they get back, a bunch of our students are going down to Philly on this Philly project and a great opportunity for us to partner with them and help them press into that trip. Yesterday, I entrusted them with my amazing 21-year-old car <clears throat> with like a hazmat bumper. And it has never been washed so beautifully as these students wash that car. Jim Taylor did squirt inside my car with a hose. So if I get black mold, I'm suing Calvary Church. I'm just letting you know that. Uh, but yesterday was a chance for us to partner with them and support them through a car wash, which was great. And then today, you saw them standing out there. And if you want to learn more about the trip here, when they're going, ways you can pray, um, there's opportunities to do that. As a thank you to us as a church, they're going to give us some Krispy Kreme donuts, which are amazing. And if you'd like to just thank them for what they're doing and partner with them as they go, there's a way for you also to make a financial uh, just contribution in response. So a couple of really great opportunities for us this summer to continue to not just be people who sit on the blue chairs, but people who personally and collectively try to reach and impact others with God's love and truth. So we're excited about those, wanted to make you aware of those, um, and we're excited, like Luke said, so grateful um, for all these folks up here who lead worship. These None of these people are on staff. They are doing this as people who work or take care of their kids like we all do, right? 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and then they give extra of their time to serve up here. And uh, I get paid to be up here. But uh, man, a bunch of these folks, this is not their full-time job. And so we're, none of these folks, it's their full-time. So we're grateful for Luke and Emmanuel uh, and Amy will be up here later and just everybody who, who serves. <clears throat> All right, so we got some uh, stuff in God's Word to get into, so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to open up the Word and see what the Lord has for us. Father, thank you uh, just for the opportunity we have as a church to try to get beyond our walls and to try to be concerned about the needs of other people and try to meet those needs through acts of love and compassion and sharing the truth about you and who you are. And so as we have two different teams going out already, Father, I pray for your protection over them, and I pray for their encouragement. I pray for the adults who will be going, just that all the logistics will come together, um, and it'll be a powerful time in their lives and the lives of people they serve. I pray for our students um, <clears throat> who are going on this trip and could be choosing to do a bunch of other things with their time this summer, Father, but they're prioritizing the service of you. And so will this be a chance for them 
to share your love with others, and not only that, Father, but will you may really work in their hearts and pull them and continue to draw them closer to you through this time away. Father, we're grateful for your word. We are grateful that it is your spirit that works to change lives and to bring encouragement. And so as we open up a letter that was written uh, years ago, we just pray and we know that it has impact for us today in relevance and in your sovereignty. You know who's going to be here every single Sunday through the series. And so I just pray that you will work in our time and in our hearts and our church so that we all uh, reflect Jesus better and that all of us grow deeper in our relationship and our fellowship with you, the triune God. So uh, work, Father, for your glory and the glory of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. <clears throat> well, I have been to way too many years of school. Uh, I, I remember one time I said something like, I was bragging to a bunch of high school kids or something, and I remember I'm like, ha ha, I'm never ever going to have to take another test again. Well, that was a lie, because I took about 42,000 tests after that, right? I've been to all sorts of different schools, and, um, and, and here's the truth. The first day of class, no matter where I was, was always the same. Whether it was, you know, even high school, whether it was undergrad, whether it was law school, whether it was the South Carolina Law Enforcement Academy, whether it was a seminary, no matter where I was, the first day of class was always the same. Because on the first day of class, no matter where you were in those people, you did a few things, right? First of all, man, you got to scope out the best seat. You got to make sure you get the best seat in the house that gives you easy in, easy out. I was always a back corner kind of guy. First day of class, you scope out the seat. Second thing you do, particularly in some of these grad schools, and I don't know what, uh, this is what I know, right? In law school, <clears throat> there was a term called gunners. Gunners. Anybody know what a gunner is? A gunner is that annoyingly nerdy, arrogant person who wants to show everybody in the class how smart they are. And they want everybody in the class to know or at least think that they're much smarter than everybody else. I despise those people. So my secret mission, like a ninja, was to, you could pretty quickly identify the gunners. They're the people who are like, ah, oh, professor, I've already read the first 700 pages. So I do? It's like, whatever, right? I would identify the gunners, and then my buddies and I would have a quest to take them down. <laughs> It's true. We were like the maverick, right? We're, we were. We're like, we're going to identify the gunners. We're going to take them down. First day of class, man, you got to know where that seat is because you're going to be there for a, a semester. The other thing you do, you got to know the gunners because you got to know who to like surreptitiously take down. But the third thing that happened, no matter where I was all the time, was you got the syllabus. The syllabus. Remember the syllabus if you've ever been to school? Some of us probably remember the actual paper that was handed out to us with a staple in the corner. Uh, now, but now, even if it's not in a paper form, if it's electronic, if it's digital, you always get the syllabus. And the syllabus on the first day of school kind of allowed you to know a few things. You would learn what the class was about. You would learn what was expected of you. <clears throat> you would have some conversations about what you were going to cover and when you were going to cover it. Uh, syllabus day, when you started a new class and you started new subjects to let you know where you're going. Well, guess what, Calvary Church? You hopefully have found a seat that makes you comfortable. Maybe you've identified who the Christian theological gunners are around you. <clears throat> They've already told you that, man, this week when I was praying for 42 hours, I just really felt a little, right? And it's an opportunity for us to go to church to have Syllabus Day. Okay, today's Syllabus Day, because what we're doing is we're kicking off a brand new series this morning as a church. What we do at Calvary Church is we open up books of the Bible and we just work our way through it, kind of paragraph through paragraph, word through word, and think about what did it mean in the original context in which it was written, and what applications does that have for us today. And so today we're opening up a new book, it's Syllabus Day. For the next several weeks, we're going to be in very, very tiny little books. We're going to be in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And today, because there's a 1 John, guess where we're beginning? Yes. I should have messed with you all and started in 3rd John. No, today we're starting in 1st John, and um, it's just going to be Syllabus Day. We're going to talk about what we're going to see in this series, what we're going to cover, some background information. It may have more of a teaching feel than a preaching feel, but that's okay, because we want to be a church uh, that understands the Word of God and what the prayer is, that every time we end a series, that you have a better understanding of what that book of the Bible is about. 
so that if you bounce into somebody who says, man, I'm, doing, I'm studying the book of Nehemiah or James, you'll be like, oh, yeah, I know some stuff about that. So 1 John is what we kick off today. So here's what we're going to do on Syllabus Day. We're going to see and we're going to answer about five questions. <clears throat> we're going to answer who wrote it, what was the cultural context or background, what's unique about its structure, what was the main reason for writing, right? So kind of what's the big idea of the whole book of 1 John, and what are two things to know about the big idea? Those are the five questions that we're going to answer today on Syllabus Day. 1 John, uh, and then we get to like, man, 3 John is like three paragraphs. So they're tucked away. you got an index if you're not familiar with the Bible or electronic device. You can flip it open if you need Bibles. We have some out there. And so let's jump into it, right? Let's answer and think about the first question of who wrote it. Any guesses on who might have written it? Man, y'all are a bunch of gunners. It's just... It's just true, right? Nobody has a chance against you. Yes, uh, the book was written by a guy named John. There's a few different Johns in the Bible. Interestingly, some books of the Bible identify the author's name in the very beginning. This one doesn't. Um, But church history has long affirmed that it was written by John. From the very early days um, when these letters started to get passed around, uh, people were affirming and testifying the fact that John was written. John was uh, the same John who was a disciple of Jesus. Man, John was a hard-working dude when you kind of study what he was doing when Jesus was doing his ministry, John and some friends of his and some family members had a very successful fishing business, uh, Deadliest Catch. These guys had it down. They were in a successful fishing business. John, Jesus came to John and, like he did ever, said, follow me. And so John left that fishing business to go become a follower of Jesus. John's mother was a woman of some financial means, and she actually supported Jesus' ministry throughout his life. John, as you kind of read his story through different places in the Bible, man, this dude had a short temper. Boom, right? He, isn't it interesting what a bunch of normal dudes these disciples are? Like, if you literally just think about it, right? Think 20-year-olds, because that's probably what they were. Think arrogant Peter, who's like going to take on the world until he's humbled. And this guy, man, short fuse, short temper, wanted to like destroy pretty much everybody who objected to Jesus, uh, but had a huge passion for the truth. After Jesus' uh, resurrection and then ascension into heaven, which we've just finished studying about, uh, John then began this ministry as a pastor. And he pastored some churches, and then in the last decades of his life, uh, he spent role was kind of an overseer of various regional churches. So most people think it's around where modern-day Turkey is now. There were various churches in that area, and John was kind of the bishop. He was the overseer of that. Uh, Eventually, because of his faith and because he wouldn't renounce it, uh, John was sent to an island, an island known as Patmos, and they didn't execute him. They didn't really put him in house arrest. They put him on island arrest. I'm thinking, man, you sent me to Turks and Caicos for the rest of my life, and I'll go be arrested there. I don't think it was quite as pleasant as the Turks and Caicos. On this island of Patmos is where he writes the book we're going to study in the fall, the book of Revelation. And so we're going to read another book that John writes later. Um, Most scholars think that at the point of John writing this, he's in his 80s. He's towards the end of his life. He's towards the end of his career overseeing churches, and he writes this from a lot of wisdom and for some very particular intents that we're going to talk about. The reason that John wrote this is linked with what was going on in the culture in that time. It's linked with what his readers were experiencing, and that caused something to be on his heart to try to encourage them with. So we now know who wrote it, John, and some stuff about him. Let's think for a few minutes about, okay, well, what was going on in the world and the time and the culture and the lives of the readers? At this point, this book is written to Christians, and most of our points, all of our points today are going to be um, given to Christians. We know that not everybody who comes here is a Christian, and we're grateful that you're here. Uh, Part of what we love is that people who don't necessarily believe in Jesus or don't know what they believe from other faith traditions feel comfortable coming into our community and our body and at least hearing what Christians believe. This letter is written to Christians, and so the points today are going to be directed towards Christians. And the Christians 
In this time, in this culture, we're facing all sorts of different persecution. There's a little uncertainty about the exact date of this writing, but regardless of when this was written, man, the people who were getting the letter, life was not smooth sailing for them. They were definitely facing persecution. They were being rejected because of their faith by their friends, where they worked. It was affecting their livelihood. It was affecting familial relations because maybe some parents didn't want anything to do with them. And depending on the time, actually, if you identified as a Christian, your life could actually be in danger. With that persecution going on, they were in a culture with all sorts of different truth claims being raised against them. All sorts of different beliefs, all sorts of different philosophies, and they were really one of many. And what uniquely seemed to be happening was that in the churches at this time, there was some division and disunity that was starting to spread and weave its way through it. There were a group of people in one church who started to buy into this false teaching. And like a lot of people sometimes in churches, they weren't content to just keep that to themselves, man. They wanted to influence, they wanted to shape, they wanted to spread what wasn't true to other places. So what these people who believed in false teaching did was some of them, and then they'd also hire these preachers. And so they'd send these people to go around to different churches to try to spread this teaching. So it'd be like if somebody came in here today and started sharing something that wasn't biblically true. And then after they're done here, they stole a cup of our free coffee, and then they went to Blackrock, and then they went to New Life, and then they went to Stephanie Baptist, and they would do the circuit of churches, and they'd say, hey, I don't care what all those people on the stage are telling you. I got the real truth. I got the real deal. You're missing out on something. So these traveling preachers would go around to these churches, and the Christians in the churches started to have all this confusion. And they're like, whoa, oh my goodness. And then they started to have this doubt. And they started to have this uncertainty. And for some of them, there was this feeling like, well, what if we're wrong? What if we haven't been right? Maybe we don't really have a relationship with God. Maybe we need to do more to have a relationship with God. They were wondering if they were mistaken. They were confused about just how to process this, and they began to have some doubt. And a senior citizen who had stepped away from his career, who knew Jesus personally, looked out at much of the people who were younger than him, not all of them, but a bunch of people who were a generation below, and he realized they were feeling all these things, and it just caused this burden on his heart. And and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there was something that he thought, man, i got to make sure that these Christians know. And one of the last things that I pass on to Christians, i got to make sure to leave this legacy to help bring some comfort and some encouragement and some truth. And it wasn't only John that wanted them to know something. It was God. Because God's the one who inspired John to write this letter because it was something on John's heart and it was something on God's heart that he wanted to tell these people. And with the uncertainty and the persecution and the unknowns and the doubts and the emotions and all of that swirling, he wanted to just say, oh, let me remind you something. Let me talk to you about something. Let me tell you something. Let me anchor you to something And let me have you rest in that something. And maybe today, some of you are facing challenges. Maybe you came in here and you clapped your hands, but you didn't really feel like it because you're facing some sort of discouragement or just some circumstances. And the emotions that the original readers faced from the circumstances they were in, maybe you're not in the same circumstances, but maybe you're facing the same emotions of confusion, of some doubt, some uncertainty, of, of some wondering, okay, where is God in all this? And do I need to do more to get God to love me? Does he love me? Does he care about me? Maybe you're questioning how God feels about you. And if you don't feel like he feels about you the way you want him to, if that's your feeling, then you put this pressure on, what do I do to try to fix that? Maybe you come in here and you just feel pressure 
because uh, I appreciate what, what Luke said. Um, you just feel like God's a little far away. There's a great line in a song written by a Christian musician who shares that he sometimes feels like God's way up there just playing hard to get. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you're doing your thing and you're trying to be faithful and you're trying to press on and <clears throat> you're trying to live the way God wants, but there's a, you just, you just feel a little empty inside. You feel a little dry inside. You feel a little confused, a little uncertain. What if, what if what this senior citizen wanted to remind his readers of to bring encouragement to them through this series can bring encouragement to you? What if what was written centuries and centuries and centuries ago to pass on some foundational truth to give encouragement to people can give encouragement to me through our time together in this series? What if, right? What if what God and John remind those people of, you'll be reminded of, and you'll walk out of here at the end of this more encouraged or at least confident or at least with a proper perspective that maybe you don't have this morning, before we look at the specific thing that John said, we got to kind of answer our third question and think about the manner in which he said it, right? We got to think about the structure of this letter. Before we get into the content, uh, we're going to think about the letter's structure. He, here's the unique thing about the letter structure. Uh, lots of books in the Bible, books in the Bible are written in all sorts of different literary genres. Uh, most of the books in the Bible are pretty linear. So you start at point A, and it is a linear, logical, sequential description of what the author wants to write. Paul, right? Very linear. He talks about one topic, then moves on to the next topic, then moves on to the next topic. In the biographies about Jesus, it is a chronological, linear uh, description of the events and the true stories of Jesus. John, for whatever reason, in this book, the dude is not linear. He is like stream of conscious, ADD, hard to track guy. Interestingly, some commentators, uh, I don't know if this is true, when God inspires us, he works through our unique personalities and life stage and works through that. Well, he doesn't inspire us today. When God inspires the people who wrote the Bible, he worked through everything that they were facing and who they were and their personalities and got on the page exactly what he wanted on the page. Some scholars think that since John was old, uh, he'd kind of start talking about something, get a little distracted, come back to it, right? Have you ever had that happening? Be like, oh, I got to go get an oil change. Okay, I'll go up there. Do we have ketchup? I don't remember if I got ketchup at the store. Maybe. So anyway, I'll go to Jiffy Lube at about two o'clock, right? And we're just flowing. John is flowing. And so what happens in chapter one, Chapter one, he'll talk about an idea. Then he'll move into another idea. Then a different idea. Then chapter two, he'll go back to the idea A. That, so each chapter kind of loops and circles and spirals and repeats the same ideas. And so what we're going to do in the series is going to be a little different than most series. Most series, the most helpful thing is to open up first verse, work your way through it. That is not going to be helpful here. We are going to cover most every verse in John, but we're going to kind of track the themes that he writes in. Okay, so when there's a theme on issue A, we're going to see what he says about it in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and then pull those all together. So a loopy book, a repetitive book, but a book with great inspiration. So with that said, in the way that he writes it, what's the big idea of the book? Well, if you needed to just walk out of here and you're on Christian Jeopardy, and, right, and you need to put the answer in the form of a question of the big idea of John, well, you're going to be able to walk out of that because that's what we're going to talk about. What, what is it that John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage his readers that could be encouraging to us? What's the main idea of writing? We're going to look at two different verses, and we're going to pull that together, okay? So, first couple of verses. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Here's what he writes. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, when it says that which was from the beginning, he's not talking about what was from the beginning of creation about God. What he's talking about is 
what we've learned, what we've seen, what we've been taught, what we've observed since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So from the beginning is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what he's saying is, look, that which was from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, next big word. So that, right? So that. So that we're about to see the purpose. Here's what John's saying. It's like there's all this teaching from the beginning of Jesus. There's what Jesus taught. There's what Jesus says. We want to remind you that. But here's why we're writing to you. Here's why we're pulling that in. Here's the purpose. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. It's really important to write. John is writing to people who already are in a relationship with God. We're going to see that in a minute. They are Christians. They believe in Jesus. They put faith in Jesus' substitutionary work for them on the cross, right? They be, and, but here's what John's saying. Hey, I know you guys have all sorts of doubts about what is true. I know you have all doubts of sorts about whether you need to do more in your relationship with Jesus, what God thinks about you. I know you may not think that he feels about you the way you want him to feel, but listen, I just want to remind you of one thing. I'm writing all of this to you, what John is saying, so that you may have fellowship with us and remember our fellowship is with God. Here's what John's saying. Look, I want you guys to remember that as Christians, we have fellowship together. And as Christians, not only are we in fellowship together, but we are in fellowship with God. We are in fellowship together, but we together are in fellowship with God. You're, if you're a Christian, in fellowship with God. And when he's writing like about this fellowship, the big idea of this whole letter is this idea of fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. And what's under this that we'll see later is what John's doing is, look, I just want to remind you that you have fellowship with God, and I want you guys to be able to experience the depth and the joy of that fellowship and that relationship the way that I do, John's saying. First thing he reminds them of is this idea that we're in fellowship together and together we're in fellowship with God and I want John saying your fellowship to be as strong and as deep and as meaningful and as joy-giving to you as John's saying he experiences depth of fellowship, depth of fellowship. He's reminding them of this. And then that it, we, we need to kind of layer on top of that this other place out of chapter 5 where he gives kind of this the, another layer to understand the purpose in verse 5, 13. All right, here's how we know they're already Christians. He's saying that, look, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's not trying to get them to convert to Christianity. They are Christians, but he's writing to them that, again, the purpose, I'm writing all this to you that you may what? No. That you may what? One more time. It's a little quiet. The people at home can't hear you. That you may what? No. no. That you have eternal life. I'm writing these things to you so that you don't doubt. I'm writing these things to you so that you don't worry. I'm writing these things to you so that you don't feel like you have to do more and put the pressure on you. I'm writing these things to you so that no matter what you feel, I, something I want you to know. And what I want you to know is despite the false teaching you're hearing, despite the persecution you're facing, despite the emotions that's making you file, that you know that you have fellowship and a relationship with God, and through that you have confidence in the hope and the life that you have because of that. He's reminding them, and the whole letter will be this reminder. Guys, you have fellowship with God. You have the hope of eternal life. You are secure in that. When we combine those purpose statements, here's what we kind of see as the main reason for writing and the big idea of the book for them and for those of us in the room who are Christians today. 
And we're Christians today, not because we come to church. We're Christians today, not because we cuss less today than we did this time last year. We're not Christians because you put a five in the box. What makes a person a Christian is how they respond to what they've heard about Jesus. And the truth that there was sin that separated us from God and there is nothing we can do on our own to ever overcome that. And that put us in a place where we deserve to be punished for that sin, but God in his love didn't want to punish us, but in his justice, he has to punish sin, and so Jesus came willingly, voluntarily, as a substitute to be punished for us, to be punished because of us, so that we would never have to receive the punishment from God and only would receive mercy and grace in terms of whether we face his wrath or not. That, that's our response to that. We respond to that grace by faith. And what makes us a Christian, right, is our response to that if we've done that. And what God wants Christians to remember is this, that you and he have a deep and meaningful relationship slash fellowship. Fellowship sounded a little churchy. So I put relationship. But John's all about the fellowship together. This morning, God wants you to remember throughout all of our series in the Johns, God wants you to remember that you and he have a deep, if you're a Christian, and meaningful relationship and fellowship together. In 2008, when the recession hit, I was working at a church outside of Atlanta, and they came in $200,000 under budget, and so there was no more position for the pastor of community, so there was no more position for me. And I, that, if you've ever lost a job, been laid off from a job, um, the, if you've been in that role, for sometimes some of you are like, yes, I don't have to show up tomorrow, right? Most times people are not yes, they're like, they have to process that. And it, 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 I did not like that experience. Um, so man, it, it, it kind of wrecked a lot of things. I mean, I remember a very successful guy who was in our community group um, who, man, corporate hard charger, extremely successful. In some conversations, he's like, bro, that's happened to me a few times, right? Restructuring, reorganizing. And he's like, he looked him in the eye and he said, I just want you to remember that God got you and it's going to be okay. In my heart, <clears throat> I, I knew that. But in my emotions, I did not feel that. I felt anger, I felt panic, I felt, how am I going to pay for this stinking house in Atlanta with my kids? Like, I mean, I love me some Chick-fil-A and work it there, but I don't think that. And you know what, in that moment, it, I just need, he just reminded me of what I already knew that spoke to my troubled heart. And it was encouraging. A couple months ago, I had a f- friend who lost a job. And, and and I've been on all sides of transitions. I've been transitioned, you know, out of a job. I've transitioned people. I know the spiral on either side. I know what happened. I could write a book on it. You know, they have like the five stages of grief. I could write you the five stages of transitioning out of a job. And so I just kind of <clears throat> spoke that experience. I'm like, look, I know that right now you're kind of in this adrenaline phase. It's just task. And then I know that's going to crash and the anger is going to come and the fear, and the waves, but listen, God's got you, and, and it is going to be okay. And you know what this person said? He said, man, I, thank you. I know that, but thank you for reminding me of that. Sometimes in life, we, we know something, but we don't feel it. But we just need somebody who cares about us to look us in the eye and just remind us of what we already know with no pressure for that to make us as happy as we are in the happiest day, right? I think sometimes that's the expectation that if I'm having a hard time and you remind me of truth, I'm going to be like, ah! like Cinderella afterwards, right? No, because life is hard. But in the hard moments of life, we need those people to sometimes just remind us of something, to anchor us to something, even if we don't feel it. Maybe this morning your emotions have been wreaking havoc on you the past week, the past month, the past winter. Maybe this morning you feel dry and you feel distant from God. Maybe God's been silent in your life. Nothing worse than the silence of God. I don't, well, I do like silence, 
but I don't like things out of my control. And when things are out of my control, I like trying to figure out a way to control them. But I can't control God. And when God is silent, I mean like I can't imitate a cricket, otherwise I would have tried. Like crickets. I do not like that. <clears throat> and so I want to try to control that so that I'll feel like I hear from him again. And I, got, I can't control God. Maybe God's silent for some of you. And maybe this morning, even though you believe everything you believe to be true, you don't really feel like it's true. There are moments when you absolutely believe that everything you believe is true, but at the same time, you don't feel like it's true. And if that's where you are, if you're wondering, does he really care? Okay, does he really care? Am I in good standing with him? Do I need to work harder to have him forgive me of my sins to get right with him? If you've bought into legalistic teaching that says anything you're feeling is because you're not doing good enough or hard enough or best enough. Now look, are there consequences for sin? Absolutely, right? So we're not really talking about you've committed a sin and there's consequences you're navigating through. We're talking about those moments in life where you just feel like, I don't feel close to God. I don't know if he's there. I don't know if he's falling asleep at the wheel or put this thing on cruise control, but I don't know where I'm going. And then you feel like that must mean I've done something wrong. So I'm gonna try to do something even better. And you've just gotten under that weight. I don't know if you're in any of those places this morning. I know if you're a Christian and you live this thing long enough, you will be. I know if you're a new Christian, I, you may think I'm up here talking crazy talk. But when you get a little gray in your beard, you're like, man, this Christian faith is not always easy. If you're somewhere on that scale today with some of those emotions, then this is for you today. God wants you to remember that you and he have a deep and meaningful relationship and fellowship together. You, if you're a Christian, and the God of the universe, the God of the universe has a deep and meaningful relationship with you, and you have a deep and meaningful relationship with him. Just, just pause for a second. Stop expecting that to be what you hear in a church. See, that's the problem with church. We hear truths, and we're like, oh, yeah, that's true, but I'm in church. What am I supposed to hear? Just pretend we're at Starbucks. Pretend we're somewhere. And let it sink in that the God who made everything, even if you don't feel it this morning, that you have a deep relationship with him and he has a deep relationship with you and he knows what he's doing. And he cares about you. And there's that foundation. There's that anchor. There's that support in the storm and you have it even if you don't feel it, and even if you believe it to be true, but you don't feel like it's true, maybe, just maybe, the only reason you're here this morning is not just to have a Krispy Kreme donut, but because God wants to remind you, like, hey, you're not alone. We're in this together. I may be, seem distant. I may seem silent. You may not even see where I'm working. But we're together in this. We're together in this. John then gives us a few things to know about that relationship. Again, he's, he's ADD, right? So we got to kind of work our way through this to see where we pull these other things. But in chapter 5 again, verse 11, we've read some of this. And this testimony, right, the first thing that you need to know about your relationship with God, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The first thing to know about this relationship, this fellowship with God, is the fellowship is built on what Jesus did, not what you do. The core of what has put us into the relationship, the core of what keeps us in that relationship is 
built upon what Jesus did, not what you do. Again, does our sin, do our bad choices, does our disobedience impact some of that? Yes. But none of that, if we're a Christian, determines whether we've slipped out of God's hands. Because what got us into God's hands was nothing that you or I ever did. What got us into a relationship with God is nothing that you or I ever did except by putting our faith. What's gotten us into a relationship with God is what Jesus did. If we could have done it ourselves, we wouldn't have needed Jesus. But we needed Jesus because we couldn't save ourselves. We needed someone to save us. And he has saved us. And the gospel says the pressure is off you to try to be good enough to get yourself into a relationship with God. Once we're in a relationship with God, we obey, right? We're going to talk about that. Don't worry. All that's coming. Once we're in a relationship with God, we obey. We do what God wants, right, in response to what he's done for us, out of love for what God's done for us, out of realization of the relationship. But none of our obedience gets us into the relationship. And sometimes what we do is when we sin, we feel like we've blown it, and we feel like, oh, my gosh, we've got to do a lot of nice things now to make ourselves right with God. We better read our Bible a whole lot tomorrow morning. We better, like, get in our car to parking lot and pray, because if we pray for 44 minutes... We'll overcome what we did wrong. Look, Jesus already overcame what you did wrong. Jesus already overcame what you did wrong. That should drive you to live a life of worship and love and obedience because of what he's done, not to try to get him to do something. The relationship, the fellowship with God, we got to understand. He wants them to know it's built on what Jesus did, not what you do. So these readers, don't put the pressure on yourself to try to work your way into God. You're, you're there. Don't doubt. Remember, they're doubting. They're not sure. Oh, my gosh, we believed the wrong thing. We got to do this. We got to do 42 of these and 57 of these. He's like, no. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And that relationship with God, he wants to remind them that it's not a one-and-done stagnant thing. There's two different places, again, that in his kind of ADD looping moment, he makes that point. First, we've already read, but I love this in John 1.1. Listen for the progression in this. We've read it. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, seen, looked upon, and touched. That there is a progression of growth there, right? Heard, seen, looked upon, touched, right? First is like, bro, I'm just out here hearing about Jesus, right? I, I heard, right? And then not just hear it, but now I'm taking another step and I see it. I see what Jesus is doing. I see what he's teaching. I see who he is. And then another step, looked upon. This word looked upon, you know what it means? Gaze. Gaze. I heard some truth. Okay, I saw a little more, but then I entered this moment in my life where I just stopped and I just gazed at Jesus. And then the next progression is touch, this intimate relationship, connection. It is a progression of this fellowship. It is a progression of this relationship. Their knowledge of Jesus, what John is saying, it grows, it develops, it matures over time. And then John kind of Again, piggybacks off this in verse, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Um, I'll read it so then I can say I almost read every verse in the book of John. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the elder one. Then there you go again. I'm writing to you, children. Like, John, seriously, just tell the kids what they got to tell them first. Then I write to you children because you know the father, fathers because you know him from the beginning. I write to you young men because you're strong. Most commentators across the board think John is not actually writing to this demographic. Because if he was writing to this demographic alone, he would leave out some young ladies, right, some moms. He's not, he, he's using this as a metaphor. Not actually talking to young men and little baby boys. He's talking to people who are different places in maturity. And he's using this as a metaphor for Christians who are different places in their spiritual maturity. Some Christians are just new Christians, little babies, right? Other Christians have been Christians for a while, and they've matured a little bit, but they're not as mature. And then you got the fathers, 
You got those people that have faithfully served the Lord for generation after generation, different people in their places spiritually, and putting this together, right? He's telling us, look, you can hear, you can see, you can look, and then you can touch, and you can be a baby, you can grow up a little bit, and then you can be wise in Jesus. And here's the second layer to this truth about the relationship and fellowship with Jesus. That relationship and fellowship can grow and deepen and sweeten over time. The relationship and the fellowship that you have with God, it can grow, it can deepen, and it can sweeten over time. Do you ever have those friends? I mean, you've known those people for decades. And you don't even have to, you've been a point in your relationship, you don't even have to say a word. They know you. You don't have to explain who you are. You don't have to disclaim things. They know your heart. They know your faith. And so there's a deepness and a sweetness just to commune and be together. They, they, they are able to almost finish your sentences. You've walked a lot of life with these friends through sickness, through illness, through kids getting married, through kids having babies, through families facing hardships, and through all of that, there's a deepness in that relationship that brings meaning to it. What John is saying is, hey, no matter where you are in your relationship and fellowship with Jesus, which you have, guess what? There's a way for it to go even deeper. There's a way that there's another hole. I don't mean like weird, like whatever level, but man, there's a depth and a sweetness, man, that you can still walk towards and walk into. It's not a one and done. It is a relationship that grows and deepens and sweetens and matures over time, not because God changes, but because you change. And as we change in that relationship, we grow, have a faith that there's this deepness and there's this sweetness. And part of what enables that to happen is gazing. Gazing. Love the discipleship class we do after this on culture and truth. And man, we're talking about it all. And if you've missed it, well, you've missed it. Uh, but it's, I mean, I'll just tell you, I'll like, I don't know how many churches are able to do what we've done in the past few weeks together um, and just love talking about really tough issues of politics and abortion and da-da-da-da-da-da, right? We've pressed into those. We've talked about those things together. And what we're talking about is one thing that makes it hard to know truth is we have so many distractions in our culture from social media and busyness. When was the last time you just stopped and gazed at Jesus? Now, I told you when I went away sabbatical, one of the hardest things was to try to calm my spirit to be quiet. I put so much pressure on myself to just gaze at Jesus, I made myself crazy. Like, okay, I got to gaze at Jesus. <laughs> ah! So finally I'm like, stuff it. Literally. I'm like, I'm not going to try to think about Jesus. I'm just going to stop and I'm going to be still. And maybe in that stillness, in his grace, God will allow me to know that he is God. Literally, I sat on a lawn chair in Vermont, and I looked at a flower with a bumblebee on it. Thinking, God, I can't force you to, right, speak, right? But man, I, I need to be still. I need to, as David says in the Psalms, quiet quiet my own soul. And if in the stillness God chooses to work, praise God. If the stillness God chooses not to work, that's okay. It's more productive than looking at Facebook. I'm not asking the last time you came to church. I'm not asking the last time you did your quiet time. I'm not asking the last time you went on a mission trip. I'm asking when was the last time you gazed at Jesus? And we're still. Because part of their maturing process had this place where they looked and they saw and they gazed. And we end with this. Man, I'm so glad I didn't say what I was going to say. And about 14 minutes into this, I was like, man, this is going to be a short sermon. We're almost done. Well, it hasn't really been. Look at this. We're on track for another 46-minute adventure together. Here's the last thing you need to know about your relationship with God. 
that that relationship and fellowship with God leads to certain actions and avoids certain actions. That relationship with God, that connection with God, causes you to, it leads to certain actions and it avoids certain actions. Told you all a few weeks ago, during COVID, on my day off for a few hours, I was Chick-fil-A chicken nugget boy, right? Worked up there, hustled this part-time thing to help my buddy out. I had a relationship with Chick-fil-A. Out of that relationship, something came. You know what came? I wore the most amazing skin Sketchers non-slip black shoes. They are awful looking. But something else came. You know what came with my relationship with Chick-fil-A? Led to certain actions. You know what action that was? My pleasure. My pleasure. My pleasure. I hate Chick-fil-A. You're stupid. Oh, my pleasure to serve you, right? I acted a certain way because of the relationship that I had. And what we're going to see in the entire rest of John, fellowship with God leads to certain things. Fellowship with God causes us to avoid certain things. And what John's going to unpack that we're going to study the next three weeks or so together is what fellowship with God should lead to is love. Fellowship with God that we have should lead us to be loving. Last week we talked about how so many Christians are grumpy. Man, John's going to hit that. He's like, bro, if you don't love, you need to do a little gut check. I don't mean be happy. I don't mean be fake. I don't mean be therapy. John's going to say that you can hate somebody and be, smile at them, but someone in fellowship with God is someone who loves. It leads to certain things, and someone who's in fellowship with God avoids certain things, and what he's going to warn us to avoid is we're going to avoid sin, and we're going to avoid false teaching. And that's what we're going to work through the next few weeks together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here, and next week we'll jump into one of those. We'll either think about what fellowship with God should lead us to or what someone in fellowship with God should avoid. But, but here's kind of the challenge for all of us today, right? I like to make this a little practical. I don't, I don't know. I do some of these. I hope you do because... I think they could be encouraging, but what I'd love, right, we've heard some truth today. I'd write, hey, if you're a Christian, if you've been reminded that you have fellowship with God, I want you to write down through tomorrow, grab a piece of paper, type it in your notes, three encouraging things, even if you don't feel them, that flow from you having fellowship with God. Three encouraging things that flow from you having fellowship with God. And the second thing I'd love you to do is to take two minutes, five minutes, and think about what it would mean for you to gaze at Jesus this week. I know you're busy. I know kids have graduated. I know summer camp's coming. I know there's vacations. I know there, I know. Take some time and just say, man, what would it look like for me to just purposefully gaze at Jesus for a bit this week? The homework is write down three encouraging things that encourage your soul from the reality that you have fellowship with God, and then take some time to think about what it means for you to gaze at Jesus this week, and then love to have come back next week as we think about what we should press into as people who have fellowship, and what we should avoid. We're going to sing this song, worship together. Uh, and then if you want to stick around, we've got a class afterward. And whenever you leave, man, grab a donut and hear more about how you can support and partner with our kids this summer.